0: separation i'm joel jackson in seventh ward in new orleans and on the other line as always uptown on easter andrew levy what's up dude
1: what's going on joel you know i think it's incumbent on me to figure out what ward
0: i live in so that i can just answer you back third or fourth one of our guests upcoming that will uh, might have an idea i don't know we'll figure it out i'm gonna try and beat him to the punch okay i like your you... i like your puma t-shirt dude oh
1: thank you as always this podcast is sponsored by Puma, supplier of fine athletic pl- products. I as, well actually, as, as
0: well as well As well as Tecate, well right?
1: Yep. Fuck Corona, indeed. Yeah, no, I have a little bit of a Puma fetish. I have, I think, eight pairs of Puma Liga suede sneakers. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's a impressive. Um, I it love is, that.
1: It is. Uh, I just started collecting them not all that long ago, and I stuck with it unfortunately not, I don't really get much of an opportunity to wear
0: them at the moment. Or are they like, why is that? Cause you need like, it needs to be cool. Is that the deal? Uh, like, uh,
1: they're, they're more, I don't know. They're more casual going out attire and I'm just not going out that much.
0: Oh, that's right. We're just staying at home.
1: That's right. We're staying at home, Joel. You, um, you may have heard about, so just to catch you up, there's yeah. been this crisis, it's a global crisis. There's Dude. a disease that's spreading, it's a pandemic. And Dude. it's coming to your town and preventing you from going outside. I'm glad awesome. I could educate you there, buddy.
0: I still wore my Adidas track suit like two nights ago, by the way. So just so you know, COVID-19 is not a great excuse for not busting out your dopest attire is all I'm saying.
1: Hey man, you do you, I'll do me. <laughs> the question on everybody's lips that everybody's asking is are you wearing pants i'm not going to answer <sighs> that question i don't think anybody on this call should but if we're gonna borrow from the culture for a moment that Board. is the question on everybody's mind
0: and we have a little bit of a it's, it's funny because obviously you know we're, we're we're contextualized by coronavirus as always but we have a storm approaching new orleans right
1: now that's right it's one o'clock on a sunday afternoon in new orleans and we were advised yesterday that there was going to be a tornado watch so right. the winds are slowly mounting outside it keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back but it looks like around you no know, why do they
0: keep doing that man they keep pushing us back i'm like can you just start on time Please, seriously why can't
1: we control the weather right is exactly. that so much to ask
0: um, i took a walk to get the, the Paps blue ribbon that i'm because of america and it's easter um that i'm drinking right now and i took a walk and it was the calm before the storm thing and i and i may have shared this video with you of the plastic bag doing like the windy thing that it does then the plastic bag was like fall like stalking like i not saw just one mood. of
1: those the other day too man i know
0: what you're talking about and so it made me think of like how the fuck did american beauty ever win an oscar like I understand that it was riveting at the time, Andrew. I thought it was riveting at the time, but it might be the most least rewatchable movie that's ever been Academy nominated or with a win. What What you are what, well, your take? It, well, it, it won Best Picture, Joel, and regardless of I what you think is.
1: about it, I, I'm going to I'm going to quickly betray the fact that I I've seen that movie a lot of times. Oh, and okay. I would agree with you that it probably doesn't hold up. But there are some classic moments from that film. I think of sure. lines like, fuck me, your majesty. Or I really, mm. Annette Benning got a lot of the best lines. Driving around oh. in the car singing, uh, don't let the cloud cloud rain on your parade. And then she pulls into the drive-in and then her
0: husband. Yes. Man,
1: like, there are some moments in that film.
0: And that's, Annette Benning's rage in that film. Yep. Delights me to write to this moment so i just retract everything i just said great movie i don't think he should have won the oscar though
1: i think the oscar might have been a bit of an over uh, overstep there i
0: I and then kevin spacey doesn't hold up well for obvious reasons you know you know we were
1: talking about this the other day with louis ck you can't deny that their performances were good you hate 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 the player don't hate the game
0: Hey, man, Darren Sharper, Sharper helped us get a Super Bowl for the Saints in 2009, and Bill Cosby was my favorite show growing up, so I hear you.
1: Yep, you can't unlive those memories, uh, as, as painful as it is to think about them now, and as little as The Cosby Show gets reruns
0: nowadays. But one segue I wanted to make um, was that American Beauty was making me think about the movie, about how I hate Americans, and it made me think of our music intro for the podcast that we've never talked about on the show
1: so the 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 clinic i believe is the so the 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 opening theme music was bequeathed to us by by griper who so you all know he 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 hasn't left us behind he's just a little bit under the weather got the fever uh, like so many people right now i don't know if he has the fever but he He has has a a fever. fever yep um but he he thought and i kind of agree that the that opening music should should, should i spin that up again joel
0: do it just, yeah just for forward. a
1: quick second i'll you know just spin his, up that his, opening these
0: paper. dudes are from liverpool by the way the
1: clinic and they wear
0: mat. they wear surgical masks when they perform and you can look up david letterman clinic performance from like the 1996 or something that's fantastic
1: Yep, they go back, they're an English band. Liverpool, obviously, with a great musical heritage. Um, but that song is sort of so creepy and foreboding that we thought it was the right way to start. So,
0: and that also made me think about a guilty pleasure that I'm going to get into later but during Christ's inspiration.
1: I'm, I'm uh, that. That's great. But speaking of, of creepy and foreboding, man, so yeah. yesterday, I've talked about how I'm, I'm on this walking kick in, inspired oh, by oh, yeah. some friends one of whom is joining us on, on the show later on. Uh, mm-hmm. but I've been on this walking kick. I've been trying to do, uh, about six miles in, uh, every day or two, um, 10 kilometers. And, uh, so yesterday I walked the entire length of the, the St. Charles streetcar from wow. Carrollton Claiborne, which is right near my front door to, yep. to, uh, all the way downtown at St. Charles and Canal. And, You know, it was so interesting to get into parts of the city that I hadn't seen and to feel that transition as you're walking down St. Charles, whereas up here at the Riverbend side, people are walking their dogs, they're kind of out, they're running, they're jogging, they're doing whatever. You got Audubon Park. And then the further downtown you get, there are fewer and fewer and fewer people. And then finally, I hit the CBD. How many
0: many zombies did you see?
1: Dude, tell me about it. Once I got the other side of of the highway, um, it was just, there was nobody except for, and I I swear to God, one guy riding around on a bicycle saying, bring out your dead, like like a Monty Python uh, call out. That so,
0: should have been me, dude. That's if if anybody
1: remembers the, uh, the 94, 95 version of Stephen King's The Stand, I believe it yep. was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar shouting that in, in New York before uh, before everybody was gone. So I, that think was, right. yeah. that, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right.
0: Also, real quick, dude, I love the fact that Stephen King came out like last week and said, hey, I apologize for that book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, plenty
1: of creepy going on. But enough of creepy. Let's talk about creepy Easter.
0: How about Jillian's hazmat costume? So we've talked,
1: we've talked before about uh, our friend, my neighbor, and my landlady, Jillian, uh, who came out this morning and texted me. And she's like, I need you to come over and take my picture. I'm like, okay. So she walked out in a full-on hazmat suit with flowers painted to, uh, or attached to both the helmet and to the shoes. And yeah. uh, it was the absolute perfect, I mean, people in New Orleans they- love loved to wear a costume, but damn, did she hit that on point.
0: Well, not only is she uh, professionally a costume designer for films and television, oh, you can hear that wind really coming through now, dude. Um, but... Also, people in New Orleans, even if you don't do that as a profession, you have a wig and you have a costume closet, and it just delighted me to no end to see her with the uh, full yellow, contagion. Uh, Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow. Spoiler alert: she dies right at the beginning. Gwyneth Paltrow in that movie, and but then to see Zero friend Jillian um, with the hazmat suit with the flowers was just so awesome. So much. Plus,
1: fun. you know, Jillian has a hazmat suit,
0: which. Okay.
1: Who has a hazmat suit, <laughs> dude?
0: I barely, I just got my first mask yesterday and we're going to talk to our upcoming guest. I want to cut, touch on like a couple more things, Andrew, but should we tease our guests real quick? since we're going to come on like in three minutes.
1: Sure, sure. Let's tease them. I'm, I'm going to let you take the intro, Joel.
0: Yeah. Speaking of like masks and hazmats and all the shit, we have two people who are healthcare professionals and um, that's going to be really intense, I think. Uh one person lives in New Orleans, Molly McGee. The other person, uh, Anne Marie Van Dalen, lives in Amsterdam. The latter is uh, a frontline sort of healthcare worker. She'll be able to tell us all about that. And then Anne Marie is a healthcare. administrator, Joel. I think it's former. Yeah, that's Yeah, it's, that's all it's, yeah, you know, it's a bizarre world. It's like Seinfeld, you know, or whatever. Um But I have, I have like two shout outs, man. And I know, do you have any more housekeeping? You wanna get out? I'm I'm good, you you take it away, man. Well, it's Easter Sunday. And that doesn't mean anything to me in terms of religion, but it does, like the Pigeon Town Steppers second line is normally on Sunday. And it's way, 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 way uptown, where you live. And they're the only social aid and pleasure club that will get my sorry lazy ass off my couch in my little downtown, COVID <laughs> and like, um, and get uptown. And I missed that today. And I, I wish, I wish we were all there because everyone's in their Easter like nines, I you would know, have been right out like, there at, with you, my it, friend. I would have been right out there with you. Multi generationals man. It's like, there's like, you've got great great grandparents all the way down to the great great grandchildren, everyone dressed up with the ties and the, the whole nine yards and the shiny shoes. That, and then I want to shout out because this has been bringing me endless joy in the last 24 hours. And um, I don't ever want to overstate this stuff, but like this thing that we're doing now, Andrew, like this recording this, I think it has value because we've talked about this. It's like talk therapy or whatever, but also will exist beyond certain realms of reality. And um, last night, uh, someone suggested to me to go back And listen to something that I recorded with Jeff DeVille in September of 2016. And it was the first time a fortune griper ever appeared on that podcast. It's a good life, babe. Um, And we and Jeff came up with this concept of and this is a great Easter listen, folks. I'm just going to say, like, look, I'm plugging six feet of separation all day long. And this podcast is dope. and I love it. But if you want to go back and get a good Easter listen for like games, like just like diversions and stuff to do, Jeff DeVille had so many brilliant, awesome, and funny takes on how to divert yourself with games. And it was called the DeVille Olympics or the DeVille Olympiad, right? He called it both. So I'm mashing that up or whatever. But it's it's so fun. You can you can check that out on apple Google Pod Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. It's goodlifebay.com. Such a fun listen. Just cut through to the like 15-minute mark and it's really good. And you get to hear Griper as well. And uh hopefully Griper is uh is feeling healthy and he, he certainly was uh, texting me last night, uh cracking up and guffawing at some of Jeff Deville's best one-liners on that show. So that was fun. And then the last thing I have for you, Andrew, real quick housekeeping, is that uh, my mom called me up to, it's Easter, we have to talk about moms, right? Um, my mom called me to give me a little bit of shit about like my lack of religion, you know, during this, I guess. As, as a proud um, atheist. As a, what? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't wear it on my sleeve, but I just happened to put some things out into the world. <laughs> Wearing all my sleeve, let's say. Most I leaned into the atheism in this one time, and she called me to, you know, to tell me how she was offended by that. But, however, we had a great conversation that started out contentious, but ended up with with having a bridge together and crossing that bridge together and understanding, loving each other unconditionally. So that's where it ended. But here's the point. I left that conversation, got on my bike to go see you and Wheeler and Tom there on his birthday at City Park um, and ran into Rome Julian, the urban farmer from Lake Tilly Acres in Gentilly, from episode and Gentilly from episode two and he said, yo, my mom has never listened to a podcast ever and she listened to the show and she thought it was dope. So, you know, I think it's it's fun that it's it's, you know, whatever, it's good. I know, moms, I feel you, Joel. Out the moms on Easter.
1: For, for me, it's Passover, but it's still Easter. Um, Indeed. And, and the highlight of my conversations with my mom this week was trying to talk her out of panic buying a $60 N95, maybe, mask. and oh, let sure. Yeah. Uh, the, look out, man. the There are going to be more and more scams out there the longer this goes on. But it was a website that was just tailored to getting people to panic buy and overpay for a mask that should be under $5. Um, it's really, really horrible. So please do not, do not, and encourage your parents and friends and family not to buy those crazy masks because even A, they don't need them. And B, even if they did, there are people out there who will need them more, which brings me to our guests yes so i i would like to welcome both of our guests to the show uh, we have molly mcgee here in new orleans and we have Anne marie in amsterdam hi how are you doing guys hey there. It's great really, to see you guys it's great to see you too and it's great to have you on the show so I'm I'm going to let you both give a little bit intro, um tell us a little bit about what you do, uh where you work and what perspective you're you're bringing to to the crisis today. Molly, go ahead.
2: Hey there. Um I am a nurse here in New Orleans. Um I'm not an old nurse. I'm only about 8 years into it as my second career. And um I'm on the front lines, 100% COVID patients all the time. So, um,
0: what hospital?
2: I work at Touro Infirmary. Mm-hmm. It's on Britannia yep. in New Orleans. Yep.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great nope. hospital.
2: Well. They're doing a super job.
0: Great. And What's the day to day like, Molly? I mean, I, I know. I mean, you can get as intense as much as, or as less as you want to, but I assume it's very intense.
2: Yeah, well, it, um, it started out super intense. Uh, you know, there were a couple of uh, COVID patients, and then all of a sudden the entire hospital was uh, COVID. And so uh, the hospital had to adjust really quickly to an influx of patients that they really, um, they knew, I, I'm not sure, it was just such a foreign patient population that overwhelmed the system that uh, it, every day I went to work, it was new policies, new um, new developments, because the more they found out about this disease and the disease process and how it was presenting and um, the testing has developed rapidly, um, there's been a lot of Change, I guess you could say it started out pretty chaotic, um, and but I do feel like now it, the chaos is controlled, um, and they have definitely done a good job. I think of taking care of uh, their patients and of their employees. That's good to hear. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, um, and you, you said you had to move really quickly to to get um, to to reconfigure everything. To, to sort of give people perspective, as of today, we have um, 20,000 and change reported COVID cases in Louisiana. I'm assuming there are many more than that that are unreported. Would you say that's correct, Molly?
2: You said that many have been actually diagnosed as positive? The,
1: those, those are the reported cases. And, and it, one thing okay. that I'd like to ask you about later is maybe if you know what the criteria are but just to juxtapose that against the total number of hospital beds in the state of Louisiana, which is 22,142. So, you know, any one of our listeners can do the math really quickly and figure out the enormous amount of pressure that this is putting on, on our healthcare system in Louisiana. And bear in mind, this is, you know, people are still getting sick with other things at the regular rate and people are still having, they're probably cutting down significantly on elective surgeries but uh there there are still you know emergency surgeries happening at the same time so how is that pressure coming to bear on you personally Molly how are how are you facing it every day and and dealing with it
2: well a challenge i think um the the well with talking about your numbers um the 20,000 plus that you're talking about probably are the confirmed um positive, positive test cases yes. I wouldn't say that all of those are in the hospital, which is good because I know um, depending on the acuity of how the patient presents when they're being tested is gonna depend on um, how they need to be treated clinically. Hopefully they have not progressed to the point where it's so bad that they can't um, treat themselves at home. Uh, Of course, the more that the disease progresses and according to you know uh, the patient's condition prior to that is going to determine if they get admitted or
0: not how are you uh, guys like how are you guys doing with ppe Molly?
2: um i have not run into uh problems with ppe i will say um they are being conservative about distribution it's not all out there you know to take and use as you want um they are being conservative in the distribution of that so uh, it's like for example one day I showed up and there was a stack of gowns and masks with my name on it so when I got to that unit they're like here's your stuff for the shift um and that's what you get right now if you know something were to become soiled or not usable anymore it would um It would be easy for me to get more um it is under (laughs) lock and key uh unfortunately at the beginning of this crisis we um a lot of the ppe was going being was being used uh rapidly and they knew that if it continued at that rate that uh, they would run out so um and it there was a lot of fear around that too and um so it just started to deplete, deplete pretty quickly. So they have come up with a method of uh, conserving their PPE as much as they can. It's, um, but it's not, I can get what I need when I need it.
1: Can, uh, can we talk a little bit about that fear that you just mentioned? I mean, I know there's fear of running out of, of uh, protective equipment and all that, but so... This, this crisis has been fairly active here for close to a month now. We've known it was coming. I'm sure- God,
2: it seems like longer, doesn't
1: it? I know. it. Well, I can only imagine what it seems like for you on the front lines. But if, if you, I, I remember in the early days of the AIDS crisis, for example, when people were terrified of being near somebody who had AIDS. And then as we learned more about the disease, and how it was transmitted and, and all that stuff, that some of that fear subsided. Has there been a similar progression in a shorter period of time as it relates to Corona? I mean, I know there's still a lot of unanswered questions, that, that much is for sure, but in dealing with it on a day-to-day basis, has it just become more of a, I'm going to work, this is what I got to do, and I'm getting it done, or, or, or are you living with that fear every day?
2: yeah it has become like that. I don't feel nearly as anxious as I used to going to work. Um, the first couple of weeks I was absolutely terrified to go to work and um, just because of the fear of the unknown, you know I mean you see nothing but uh, really unhealthy people who are not doing well and they uh, and they they don't do well for a little bit and then they decline rapidly.
3: Right.
0: Mine, and, mine. Yeah. Huh? Can, I, can I ask you in that regard? Um, does Toro provide any kind of like mental health support, you know, for the for the frontline workers in terms of just dealing with um, you know, that fear and anxiety and trying to stave off PTSD and all that stuff?
2: I uh, have not uh, really looked into much of that I know it's available if I need it um, yep. or if any of us need that I really feel like Toro has um, done a really good job to get out well to I wouldn't say, I don't know about getting out in front of it I guess they're out in front of it now but um, to really keep pace with this disease and as it's um taken over and uh they're I feel like they're taking really good care of their employees at this point.
0: That's great to hear. I think that might be a good segue to uh, Andrew, to our other guest, Anne-Marie. Hi, Anne-Marie, who who is uh, a healthcare administrator in in Amsterdam, based out of Amsterdam. Do you wanna chime in, Anne-Marie, and say hi to everyone? Hi,
3: everyone. (laughs) Uh, Let me tell you something. Uh, Great to see Molly, actually, and hear your experience. I do recognize a lot, but I work from a a little bit different perspective. Uh, I'm a CEO of a healthcare organization in Amsterdam, but we treat, we have um, like people with, um, it's more in mental healthcare. So people with cognitive uh, problems, psychiatric problems, uh, autism, that kind of thing. And um, uh, we're in this situation now for a, a month, I guess. And we have some infections, but also the, uh, or especially the impact of all the, um, uh, the fear and all the, the measures and everything, the impact on our patients is huge. And they start, they have a lot of uh, behavioral problems uh, panic attacks, uh, psychosis, um, all kinds of difficulties in, in, in change of living, and that causes a lot of problem, even actually more problems than the actual health risk and, and, uh, COVID-19 infections.
0: So, like, is one of the, that, those examples, Anne-Marie, is, like, I would imagine, um, you have someone with other issues, like, uh, a person with a, a mental health issue who, for example, and you've told me this before, uh, cannot be isolated and still be healthy.
3: Yes. Well, we have people that are very um, anxious and panicking and they need like very close attention mm-hmm. and physical contact with people uh, looking after them. Right. So uh, in uh, our uh, healthcare workers, they're not able to keep their distance like right. the six that's not possible. And we, I don't know if it's the same uh, at uh, at your place, but here in Holland, uh, healthcare workers, when they have symptoms like coughing and sneezing, they still need to go to work. And um, well, that changed during the time, but in the beginning, uh, all the healthcare workers needed to go to work. And there, were, there was no PPEA. We had a, a massive shortage of that and the PPA that was available uh, went to the hospitals because of the to the to the really sick people on the COVID-19 unit. and our people, they had to work with uh, sick uh, uh, patients without the the PPA. And that was a that was a terrible thing because people were scared and they needed to go to work and. Um, we had to send them in without a PPA at uh, at some times, mm. and that was well. That was something uh, that woke me up in the night. And um, the the patients, I think I uh, I told you, Joe. We had one, for example, that has um, a, a, a no short time uh, memory, and uh, that patient's every every day wakes up and uh he doesn't know the situation so he starts hugging people and kissing people and
1: oh
0: god. that's so crazy. Sorry. And that,
3: well it's it was quite funny also but it's like oh my god this is this is the situation where um our people are uh, are working in and we have also like young people with cognitive problems and addictions and they are just not uh, they they just don't want to stick to the rules. They just say, "Oh fuck you, we're going out. We're going to do our own thing and whatever." So those guys, um, well, the, the healthcare workers have to to keep them in, and sometimes it's a physical thing as well.
0: Yeah.
3: So hey Marie, is the um your facility
2: is it an inpatient the mental uh, unit is that uh, an inpatient
3: facility or is it an outpatient or both? Well, yeah, we have like it's one uh, organization and we have like uh, 64 small facilities and some of them are uh, really closed and others are more open and uh, we have children and grown-ups and so it's it's different every location has a different um
1: um character. I Maybe. see. let oh, hard. go ahead Molly.
2: I was going to ask also um do you, I guess you have nurses or, or uh, healthcare providers on site, and when when, or if they notice a patient has developed uh, a new onset of symptoms that maybe yeah. look like COVID, um, do you send them to a hospital to be uh, assessed or evaluated after that?
3: Yeah, uh, we'll... Uh, most of the time we have we have some uh, doctors and um, uh, nurses working there, and those patients are going to be tested and it depends on this' the the, the the gravity of their symptoms mm-hmm. if they go to the hospital or we have to put them in isolation and that depends. We had a few patients that need to go to the hospital, and others uh, had to be taken care of in our facilities oh, I gotcha yeah and there are in in my region and that's actually in all uh holland we have covid 19 kind of hotels care giving hotels sure and that's for people that are too bad to be at home or in a facility right mine but too good to go to a hospital and they need special care and that's the place where they can uh, can go
1: so that's like for people with mild, milder symptoms, but don't need to be on a ventilator. Yeah. That kind of thing.
3: Well, there are ventilators too, but it's not like um, it's a little bit in between. And okay. because all hospitals are uh, full, so there are no there is no place to go to a hospital right. for them.
1: So it, it it occurs to me it might be worthwhile, Anne Marie, because uh, the majority of our listenership is American and. And we all know what what our healthcare system is like. Uh, maybe you could broadly describe what the system is in the Netherlands and and how your organization fits into that.
3: Yeah, well, I guess it's it's a little bit difficult to explain. I guess for you guys to understand, because in Holland we we have a our system is completely different than yours, so we don't have. Like private uh, care, we have something that is in between public and uh, pr- private. Like mm-hmm. we have a regulated market situation. Um, so every organization is funded by um, yeah, government money, but that's uh, going through insurance companies. So we pay taxes, taxes go to government, that money goes to insurance companies and they buy uh, different kinds of healthcare. So I, for example, have a contract with uh, different insurance companies and they pay uh, for the patients that we have in our facility. And they, there's a difference between the, the healthcare or the hospital care mm-hmm. and the uh, more long time care, like a uh, mental care care for people with disabilities and uh, nursing homes like that okay So that's
1: a difference but there's no payment from the patient at the point of service is that correct
3: uh well everyone has a, has to contribute a little bit uh but that is nothing to compare with your situation right so every, everyone has uh um an insurance everyone is insured Mm-hmm. Healthcare. everyone has healthcare um in holland and if you use it you pay like uh well not much
1: for and, a year and it, if and you can't afford that healthcare. then there's probably some government fallback insurance yeah yeah so yeah okay. we
3: even have we even have like a certain group of people in Holland that are very religious. It's a small group, like a little bit fundamentalistic uh, religious group. And they say we don't want um, to be insured because, well, God is looking after us, blah, blah. And um, huh. we, yeah, have... we
1: have
0: that here too. Sorry. Yeah. What? We have that. We, here we have those as people well, here too. Okay, right, yeah, yeah. Right up, right up it, the
3: we have one part of our uh, healthcare department in government. There are people uh, working, especially for that group, to save money for them and give that money back to them if they need healthcare. But right. we don't call that insurance and they don't call it an insurance, but their care is it's paid for as well.
0: Understood. So that's so, why. It's fascinating, dude.
3: It is, yeah so the, the there's no problem for people here to to go to a doctor or to go to a hospital or to go to a facility and everyone is doing that and uh, yeah so, so that everyone I, I, has
2: access everyone every, has access to healthcare yeah.
3: yes yes that's not a problem so here you don't see well a little difference perhaps but the, there's a big equality everyone has access to healthcare and well, no one is bothered by, Oh, I have to pay. So I don't go or whatever. I so know. I guess that's, that's a completely different situation from, from sure. Your-
1: Definitely. Uh, where, where we have people who flat out don't have access and the ones who do are afraid to use it. Um, you know, yeah. we, I, I talked earlier on about the, the number of, of cases and, you, you would have to imagine in this country that there is a hell of a lot more that are just completely unreported because people mm-hmm. are so afraid of going to the hospital that mm-hmm. they, they won't even take a chance.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Uh, with, without putting you uh, in a difficult position, Molly, I'm wondering what would, if, if somebody who was uninsured or underinsured, if, if they came to Toro Infirmary, Showing symptoms, are are you at liberty to talk about what would happen in that case, or do you know? Or
2: well, you know, I, uh, I'm a I'm a floor nurse. I don't work in the emergency room, but uh, I do know that um, no one can get turned away at a, an emergency room because of uh, uh, I think it's the uh, uh, not because of HIPAA. Was it the ACA? Mm. And, um, just no one can be turned away for care. Um, uh, right. I, I have not heard of one person who has not been cared for at the hospital, I, but, but I don't work um, down at the bottom. No, I don't work sure. I mean, at, and, at the emergency and, room. So and, I
1: don't. and, and even if they do get the care, that doesn't necessarily, uh, talk to, you know, what happens afterwards.
0: Like the bankruptcy, you mean?
1: The the potential bankruptcy or, or something like that that could follow after a casual emergency room visit. Yeah. Yep.
0: Well, I'm,
2: I'm, I would think that they would get a bill.
0: Yeah. Right. Sure. Exactly. get <laughs> so... a one. Hey, Molly, I'm curious. Um, I know you, that you just mentioned you don't work in the emergency room. Um, but do you guys have those super quick tests now to evaluate people? when they come into the emergency room like like the, the 15 or 45 minute test
2: I believe they do now um, I have I think we just got those in maybe within the la- last week maybe I know I was tested last week and my test came back in 36 hours but I know that was expedited because um, I work there and they want to make sure we'll see what if I'm positive or not. To see if i can go back to work um and that was negative
0: congratulations uh,
2: seriously that'll be my first party outside of uh
0: we're, uh, we're sharing a we're simulation. sharing a po- we're sharing a podcast high five with you right now
2: well, yeah thanks uh, but um i i believe i don't know that it's 15 minutes yeah I'm, i just know when they get to the floor that uh Either they are waiting for the results of their test, or we know the results of their test.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so you are seeing patients come up from emergency where you know the results of the test,
2: where they are positive or not positive. I think I think so. Don't hold me to that, but I I, I believe we do most of the time know now.
1: That's but they're
2: being held down there a lot longer are, than normal as well, so. Um,
1: and, the, and why is that?
2: We don't have beds upstairs. I mean, we're right. full.
1: We're so uh, they have to wait for a bed to open up.
2: Correct. Okay. Yeah, and so at our hospital, anyway, you know, you, we originally had um, u- different units were for different patient populations. Whether it was like a, a neuro unit or a rehab unit or a cardiac mm-hmm. unit or just a med surge unit. Uh, with the exception, I think, of three units, they're all 100% COVID or COVID rule out mm. right okay. now.
1: And uh, when you say COVID rule out, like you're trying to rule out that they... they we're waiting uh, for test yeah, results. Yeah, we're waiting for test results.
2: But and they're then- being treated, What? Well, they're treated as if they are uh, COVID positive. Right. Mm. Put in uh, isolation air... Uh,
0: negative
1: pressure
0: rooms got it okay and Marie can I can I ask you a question I'm sorry Andrew i to stop on you there Um, in terms of administration um, I had asked Molly a question earlier about what kind of um, support that she has from an an administrative level and um, I'm wondering what you guys are doing um, in terms of we From my conversations with you not on this podcast my understanding is that you guys were for the last four weeks, we're always kind of a week out in front in terms of planning and strategizing. And um, I'm curious about that. And I'm curious about the guidelines that y'all developed for um, how to treat patients in critical care. Loosely, I'll just say it's like the, the triage problem, right? Um, is that something you can address? Oh,
2: who are, were you Anne. talking to, me or Emory?
0: Emory, about that administrative perspective on developing guidelines for the frontline workers, like Molly, for how mm-hmm. to address critical care and 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 whether or not to let someone pass or mm-hmm. give them a ventilator.
3: Yeah, so we started like the. The first two weeks of this period, that was uh, all about uh, making new protocols and instructions, and keeping track with um, what well, we have, what you have, uh, like the CDC. We have the REPM, and every time they make like uh, regulations and protocols, and we have to translate them. Yeah. So uh, we made a lot of protocols for the healthcare workers: what to do. When they know uh, the symptoms uh, to, um, on themselves or on the patients, and how to act, and how to address that, and how to protect them, and in what situations they need to apply the the isolation protocols, and how to do the to use the PPA and things like that. So a lot of uh, protocols were made. Right. Is that what you were addressing?
0: Yeah, I mean, basically, the, this this notion of um, you guys have to give frontline workers, doctors, and nurses protocols and guidelines for how to address um, the problematic issue of we're overwhelmed, we have too many patients, we can only treat so many, um, and how do we deal with that? How do we make?
3: Yeah, those- I guess that that's the 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 triage thing. Yeah. Um, I guess that's a little bit different in my line of uh work in the mental health care because we have we have um uh we made a plan uh to address the continuous of or of, of care, like how to be sure to keep um uh providing care when uh, the health care workers get sick, for example, so we right. don't have that triage uh question whether to treat one patient or the other, because all patients are already in our care. But we do have um, the problem when we have um, a lot of people getting sick, like the healthcare workers getting sick. And so then the question is, what patients get the care uh, of the available healthcare workers? And I guess that's in Molly's situation in hospital care, the triage is a little bit different, I guess. Yeah. And we have the, the, in Holland, I guess that's the same everywhere. Like our patients, when they need to go to the ICU, uh, then they are on a lower like admittance level. And that's really a hard problem or it's difficult. To explain. When, when you and, say a
1: lower admittance level, you mean the criteria to admit them are more relaxed? Or do no, you mean
3: higher? Like when there has to be the in, in the hospital, when there's a shortage of ICU beds, mm-hmm. they make, they uh, decide who is getting the ICU beds. Mm-hmm. And they do that by assessing what person has the most. Um, chance of living a healthy right. life after the admittance on the icu that's always like even if there's no crisis they do that and for example in the netherlands like people in nursing homes people that are like over 80 years they don't go to the icu so we have a tradition to talk with them like doctors talk to those people and they say hey do you really want to go to the ICU? Uh, we don't think you're gonna get like better there. So uh, in Holland, people over 80 seldomly go to the ICU. Right. And when they have to do the the, the triage, when there's when the there's a the shortage of ICU beds, people with um, older people with disabilities or with mental uh, issues sometimes. Are more complex to to be treated. It's
1: it's it's and- it's another factor that you take into account when deciding what what how productive their lives would be after and 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 versus another person who who's more likely to live a productive life. And uh, you know I understand that those are the sorts of. Um, I think we may have lost Anne Marie for a second there, but um, oh. I I understand that those are some of the most difficult decisions that what is that the quality any...
2: of life going to be after there's a recovery if there is a
1: recovery yeah, kind of yeah. Thing, and, right? and 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 uh, and you know i i know that that's sort of every every time we have a healthcare debate in this country uh that's one of the things that comes up and along the lines of people with money arguing that if I had more money, I should be able to to circumvent that or whatever, um, I I I think that's something that has to come down to a societal attitude that you, that you've gotten together and accepted that uh, that there are people who are intelligent and well trained people who are in a position to make those kinds of what are effectively life and death decisions, and that we all as a society have signed on to 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 live by those rules. I think that's incredible.
2: I think it's important to point out too that um, at least what I have uh, experienced is that the physicians are doing a really good job of uh, being honest with the patients, um, honest with the patients uh, in their uh, projected health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And um, also being honest about what their experience most likely is going to be, and informing the patient as much as they can about their disease, pro- uh, the disease that they have, their disease process, what, how it's going to pro- progress, and uh, their eventual outcomes uh, sooner, so the patient can make an informed decision about um,
1: how they want to proceed.
2: Yeah, their care plan. Exactly. Do they want uh, how how far do they want the healthcare providers to go to uh, help them sustain life? And maybe uh, do they want to uh, change their code status, maybe from a full code to uh, do not resuscitate or a do not intubate status? Um, if I get to this certain point, could you just make me comfortable? And, right. uh, mm-hmm. and I
3: guess. So, subject and um, a different, that differs a lot between all countries, like their different cultures are more into talking and having that discussion than all other cultures. So sure. talking about yeah. diet or not fighting or not uh, uh, fighting till the end in in an ICU. Um, in some cultures it's more difficult to discuss that than others.
0: That's and true. I For sure. Yeah, to your point emory i had some dnr experiences just very recently um because we don't talk about that stuff but then i had to like do it very fast and rapidly um that was going to be like a logistically game changer to have that do not resuscitate agreements for two different states while taking a road trip with a friend of mine and um it's and you're right i think I'm, i'm curious that your thoughts on that, that cultural difference, like what, why are Americans so shitty with that kind of thing? I wonder.
3: Yeah, And you're asking me? Yes. Uh, um,
1: I, well. h- hang on a second, Emory. I, I, I want to give Americans a little more credit than that as Molly was just pointing what out. What does he mean by it, shitty? It, it, a, a DNR and it, the, the fact that physicians are, are working with patients in the patient's best interest to, to, to do what the patient wants is, right. is extremely common in the United States. The, 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 the regulatory environment around that and how it differs from state to state is complicated. But uh, I would be one to argue that that's not a cultural difference. I would say that you know, people are very interested in their own care and what they want the closer they get to, to a life-threatening true. condition.
0: And are trying apologize. to
2: encourage to. I, yeah,
0: sorry, go ahead. Go
2: ahead, I know um, they're, uh, We're trying to, in the we're trying to get patients to participate more in their care and their health care decisions, rather than saying, "Here's your medication, mm-hmm. take it," and more like, you know, educate. Here's a, a medication that's being prescribed for you that I'm going to give you. This is what it does, and. Rarely do you get argument, but at the same time you get the patient opportunity to ask questions like, "Well, why am I taking that, or why are you giving that to me?" And uh, sure. anyway, we're trying to encourage patients to participate more in their health care and their healthcare decisions, and it involves a lot of education.
3: I guess from from uh, our and I mean like from our perspective here, if from Holland, if Mail you look at America, I think. Um, well, I have the impression that, and of course it's not black and white, but like Americans are more like, we want to, uh, repair everything and we, and you guys have more the fighting metaphor. Like we have to fight to get better. We
1: were sick. We,
3: we're fighting it. We're going to throw
1: everything at this, no matter what it takes. (laughs) Right.
3: We're going to throw everything
1: we have in the kitchen sink.
3: And just go, go, go. And, um, um, and the, the conversation about the quality of life and perhaps um, accepting the, the end or um, looking at those things in a different way. Um, yeah, I guess yeah. that's perhaps that could be a difference. I experienced that as a difference. But I guess, well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I um, don't
3: know if you... Re- Nice,
1: um Yeah, it sounds it sounds familiar. I I think America is a very big country, obviously, and there are cultural mm. differences, and as we all know, there are de- geographical differences and different attitudes in different places. But what you're describing isn't all that unfamiliar. I I, I think it's a mix. When I talked about People's choices and their wishes versus the regulatory environment, that's something that we're a lot farther mm-hmm. behind on because we are so divided, not just in terms of what people yeah. believe and how what people want, but also we have 50 states with 50 different regulatory yeah. regimes, and there is no national approach to any of that, mm-hmm. um, including mm-hmm. this crisis. Anybody who's following this crisis sees Governor Cuomo from New York, Governor Newsom, from, from uh, California, Governor Bell Edwards from here uh, in Louisiana, Governor, if you want to call him that, DeSantis from Florida, on television talking about how each state is dealing with this crisis individually. And right. there's no coordinated national mm-hmm, approach, mm-hmm. which is perhaps a lost opportunity, but it's definitely more respectful of those cultural differences. It just doesn't help people... Um, in the situation that Joel was
0: referring to before, it um, would be nice to have a federal government that had some coherence um, in helping. You know, uh, Amory. I think you know this. Like in this country, we have this states' rights thing. That, Jesus, that, do we need to
1: call Dick Cavett and Gore Vidal?
0: That's just <laughs> <laughs> whoa. That is a deep pull inside down the middle joke. Um, I love it. Um, but, like, and you and yeah, I think you might have failed to mention the Ohio, the great Ohio governor who was out in front of this, well in advance, the Republican, right? What's his name? Andrew? Yeah, he uh, did a great job. Mike, I don't Mike Mike De- De- remember his Mike name. Mike
1: DeWine. Mike DeWine. Thank
0: you. Yeah, that dude was just all over it, you know, because he listened to professionals, and and look, we don't want to beat this drum because everyone in the United States knows how what a shit show our White House is right now, and uh, Trump is basically treating this like a PR thing. And there's nothing in my mind, I'm not seeing anything actionable out of the White House. I'm only seeing, you know, uh, spend for the five o'clock news or whatever.
1: Um, I, I want to hit back on one thing that Molly was talking about before, uh, as we started to talk about patients and being honest with them about their prognosis and, and what they can expect. One of the things that I think there's a lot of, I don't want to say misinformation or disinformation, but it's confusing information about, is the different, for lack of a better term, levels of COVID infection and the prognosis at each level. Like you hear about people who have mild cases and stay at home and drink fluids and ride it out and they're fine on the other end. You hear about people who go into hospital, Boris Johnson being the the most prominent example, who go into hospital, go into ICU, take oxygen, maybe not on a ventilator, and then recover. And then there's, well, I mean, uh, I don't put a lot of stock in what the president says either, but you hear him talking about if you get on a ventilator, there's very little chance that you're coming off it alive, which is blunt, and I don't know how true. So, I mean, those are sort of the anecdotal pieces that I've picked up. Is there any recognizable real pattern that you've seen uh, on the floor of of what different levels of this in, uh, this viral infection can mean for you as an individual who gets it?
2: Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so there are certain risk factors um, that can predispose uh, people to how severe this uh, virus is going to affect them and um, lung disease clearly such as like COPD, asthma smokers are uh, presenting with, I guess they get sicker quicker if you will. Um, People with uh, metabolic problems like diabetes have, uh, we are seeing a lot of uh, diabetic patients that um, are presenting, they get faster uh, or quicker, sicker quicker as well. Uh, Cardiovascular disease, obesity, um, age, over the age of 60, primarily is um, just more of the, uh, I say pre-elderly or elderly populations.
1: Right. So Mm -hmm. basically we're, so people in those risk categories are generally more likely to have the onset and the severity, uh, a faster onset and possibly a more severe case. But what about, but what about on the recovery side? Are we seeing that any of those factors are factors in possibility of recovery at all? Or is it just sort of blanket? If you get this severe a case of the disease, your prognosis is not very good.
2: I think it depends uh, on how quickly you uh, seek health uh, healthcare or interventions from a healthcare team. You know, because I know me personally, I don't like going to the doctor. I don't like going to you know. Not not uh, too uh, many people do. I'm not not necessarily because of the cost. I just don't want to be bothered. So right. I'm going to see what I can do at home before.
1: Plus, we're I around go. doctors every day,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> and I probably,
2: you know, I I feel like I have, uh, you know, enough training to address my symptoms and treat my symptoms now. Uh, so I don't. Uh, other people, I would think, kind of act the same way. They don't want to go to the doctor. It could be because they, they're afraid of the cost or mm-hmm. they don't have a ride. They can't get there. Um, so they try to manage it as uh, long as they can at home. And so at, as that's going on, the disease is or the virus is uh, progressing. And uh, so when they I'm present to the hospital,
0: they mm-hmm. are already
2: far, along, far enough along to where um, interventions
0: uh, sure. Yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. I hear you. And Andrew, I, I, would, I have a so follow-up Sorry, up Joel, sorry
1: just just quickly before, yeah. before we sure. go on to that. I would imagine sure. there are a lot of people, Molly, who, you know, are optimistically hoping that what they have is the flu or something that isn't COVID and their thought about going to the hospital is not just colored with standard cost or going to the doctor anxiety. It's colored with I'm going to a place where there's COVID all over the place, and I don't want to take that risk. And yeah. I, 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 don't, I, I don't want to ask you for medical advice, but um, would would you say
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> should
0: griper go to the hospital? But, but,
1: well, that, that that's one question. But uh, sure, I mean, people, people, people who fall into the category that you were just talking about, are mm-hmm. they? Um, the ones
2: that are at higher risk, you're talking about?
1: No, the, the ones who are the ones trying to wait it out of home. Yeah, right. Sure. Are, are they are they increasing their, if they don't, if they're negative, are they increasing their risk by going to the hospital?
2: Uh, I can't, I, I'm not in the emergency room, so I can't really say if, um, I would hope, that people would be provided masks as soon as they come in. I, I don't know if they are or not,
1: I'm, but I'm I know anecdotally that. that they're standing outside the emergency room. Uh, another friend of ours, his mom had to go, was presenting with possible symptoms and didn't have it in Mississippi. Um, and was greeted at the emergency room by people in hazmat suits with infrared thermometers to 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 read okay. their fever before they even let them in even even close wow. to there
2: well i know that there are uh, triage tents outside of many uh hospitals and other facilities to where they are uh it is kind of a a pre-assessment where they take your blood pressure your temperature um, evaluate you for other symptoms how long you've had them your uh i guess your health prior to the onset of symptoms and um, your what other health history you have before you get sent into the emergency room. So
3: right.
2: that is helping to, and I think from there they there are physicians out in those tents along with nurse practitioners and nurses who can assess the patient's acuity here uh, um, and with the rapid testing that's going to help a lot as well so maybe somebody will know if they're positive or not before they even leave i know before the rapid testing what they were doing was what i just said and then giving them people instructions on how to isolate from your family members at home how to uh, treat yourself and treat your symptoms while you're at home and I know when I went for my test, they gave me a couple of sheets of paper with a lot of information and in here. I even was handed um, uh, an admitting uh, form to get into the emergency room to already have filled out if I have to come back.
3: Right. Molly, can I ask you something? You were describing um, like the the obesitas and the, the heart conditions, but in Holland, um, it's mostly men that, um, are admitted on the COVID-19 units. Like, I think it's 67% men. Wow. Is that the same? Is that, is that same in um, in your place as well? Well, I know that
2: has been mentioned. Um, but I've, I see both men and women. I, I can't say that it's been uh, a higher percentage of the other. Because some nights I'll have all-men patients um, all male patients and then other nights I'll have all female patients and then okay. other nights I'll have a mix.
0: I appreciate mm-hmm. you asking that question Anne-Marie because Andrew you alluded this a few moments ago um, which is anecdotal um, yep. and what I'm curious about is is there a significant difference between data points um, in, in Amsterdam and in the United States in New Orleans specifically I assume there are because I feel like in the United States and this is just sort of anecdotal because we don't have data. I feel like we don't have the appropriate data here to really know know
1: what's going on. One of the things, so I I have a a former boss who's a a statistics geek, and he keeps going into the statistics to look for patterns and and this, that, and the other thing. And I kind of want to grab him by the throat because I don't have any faith in the validity of the statistics that we're seeing. We've had we've had guests on the podcast who right. know of confirmed cases that aren't a part of the count. We, right. we can we can pretty much piece together that every country is taking a different approach to both how they're counting, how they're testing, mm-hmm. how they're sure. considering somebody recovered, how they're counting a COVID related fatality versus another kind of fatality. I, w- I sure. wouldn't put it past people not in the health, not healthcare professionals, but politicians to reclassify uh, reclassify that, you know, so it's really, really hard, I think, to draw any valid statistical conclusions unless Mm -hmm. you have real close control over the collection and aggregation
0: of that data. Yeah, it feels like we're flying blind here. Anne-Marie, what what about over there? Do you guys have better data points, do you think, than us?
3: Um, Well, I guess we have good data points on what um in the case of all people admitted to the hospitals and the uh, ICU so mm-hmm. they count that they uh, assess that they keep on track their age their health condition their the time they spend on the ICU everything and also the age and their uh, like if it's a male or a female and so those data are available now yeah and doing also research We have in the south of uh, Holland, in Brabant, there's a big, um, there was a big outbreak. And uh, so there's a lot of people infected and they uh, do a lot of research in that area, for example, to see how infectious kids are, because that's still, uh, well, the scientists are still not sure how infectious they are. So they're researching that now and um collecting data to to make sure how to adjust that
2: something too um with the, our, our data over here is that there's a from what i've read there's a 30% um false negative testing results that has oh, uh, 30%
1: been,
2: uh, reported yeah and so i know that um There have been some situations where we have patients who uh, present as though they are positive with, they have the shortness of breath, they have the tachypnea, they have the fever, they have the cough, they have uh, headaches, body aches, fatigue. Um, Their lab work comes back and reads as if, um, just like the positive patients do, their imaging comes back and looks like the positive patients do, but their tests come back negative.
0: I've Elizabeth. read that I've read that same thing, Molly, and I'm I'm curious, Anne Marie, what you think on this because at some point, I can't remember which country it was, but a country was like they were giving such a high rate of uh false negatives that they just said, we're gonna assume that everyone that's presenting symptoms has COVID because the tests aren't accurate necessarily.
3: I don't know what country that is. I think but, that was uh, Britain.
1: I think it was Britain. What's I, I, we're we're talking a few weeks ago already, but I I think that uh, I could be I could be wrong, but I I recall reading that in the Guardian,
0: and I know in the, in China there's been a lot of false negative stuff too that I've read about.
3: Mm. I was well, reading, I don't think in Holland that percentage is that high, and in the cases Molly that you describe, I know we had a few patients with those symptoms and they tested negative, but then they do the scanning. So they make the scans and then they compare the scans with the testing. And then they, after the negative test, they on the base of the scan, they can see it's, it's COVID. Right. So I guess that's to be sure they follow up with other uh, sure. to assess that.
0: This is such a fun conversation, but I'm so depressed right now. Andrew, can we have some happy talk with our guests? No, the H- happy talk <laughs> you say yeah. um
1: yeah. so i i think joel is is referring to crisis diversions is is that what you're referring to joel
0: yeah it's something to divert us from the last 40 minutes of us you know which was a great deep dive into what our realities are but we need to divert ourselves sometimes and andrew came up with the segment crisis diversion so we can like get out of a, into our COVID place and get into a happy Gilmore happy place.
1: I'm I'm all down with doing that, but not before I thank both mm-hmm. Anne Marie and Molly for Please. uh for an excellent, excellent conversation and for sharing Absolutely. so much and being so straightforward with us and our listeners. Thank you so much it's for great.
2: that. Thanks for having um, us. Well
1: oh One you're more. not going anywhere yet. <laughs> we got some more Good questions time. to ask you but a little bit less serious. So, so, Molly, I know you're on the front lines and I, I know you're there very often, but when you're not, what are you doing to, to keep your mind clear?
2: Well, I want to um, say one more thing, not negative, it's positive, about um, COVID stuff going on at my facility. Um, I'm on several uh, nurse, COVID nurse, Web, our Facebook pages, and um, there was a, a some chatter about what can we do to support the nurses and the other people on the front line because, you know, there's been a lot of heartache and um, just let down from having to give so much and then with not so positive results sometimes. And so what we're or I've presented to our administration that, you know, uh, we play uh, music when a baby is born, and Thank so like a little snip and it comes on you're like, oh, you know, baby's been born. It's been great. And so now they're trying to work it out um, to where when a patient is either extubated from uh, COVID uh, because they are getting better uh, and or uh, discharged and going home because they've recovered or recovering from COVID, we're now going to uh, play a happy song.
1: Oh, that's so, awesome.
2: That's exciting. That's May the there
1: be... A ton of music at Toro I know,
2: right. Um, so that should be going into effect this week, I think, is what my CNO let me know.
0: Good. Okay.
2: That's good. It's fantastic. But otherwise, to answer your question, what do I do? Um, well, I self isolate. And uh, so my cat, Luna Tuna Fishbone, and I are keeping each other company. Um, I do yoga. I'm
0: I'm sorry did you say luna tuna fishball? I'm sorry. That please, yes, that is that what you said?
2: That's my cat. Her friends call her oh, Tunes.
0: Amazing.
2: And that's she, awesome. she too she too is uh self isolating. <laughs> not uh not happy about it. Uh but uh amazing. I have a fantastic support group I do zoom things with, uh, uh, zoom meetings with my girlfriends. I've got the most awesome boyfriend on the planet who.
1: Yeah, you do. Uh, Hell you're right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Who brings me food like kugel and, um, and other yummies and, uh, comes and we social socialize six feet apart. And that's been a great support for me. I've, also, uh, have a, I, my mother is the uh, care package champion of the world. And uh, so I depend on my support system to help get me through this because I'm on myself. So awesome. it's been all right.
1: Keep One doing quick it. question awesome. for, on, on the yoga, Molly. Um, so obviously you're not going to a yoga class. Can you mm-hmm. recommend anything to our listeners uh, to, to do yoga? I don't know if you're using YouTube or a book or you just got it so down that you, you do it by rote. But what, what are you using? I do
2: not have it so down. Let me okay. tell you that. <laughs> so I do need instruction. No, I, um, I'm a member at uh, wild Lotus, uh, yoga studio here, and they have gone online. Uh, so they, you know, you go and you sign up for a class and they give you a YouTube website to check out that time. And it's available for 24 hours. So if I can't make it at the six o'clock time, I can do it later or awesome. so that's what I do there.
1: Yeah. Do you know if other yoga studios are doing it? That? Maybe that's for us to research, but, uh, it's great. that I yours is are. Online.
2: No, I actually, I know there are. Yeah. Cause somebody yeah. gifted me some classes from another studio. So I think, uh, a lot of studios are, are going online.
0: Oh, for sure, almost every friend of mine that's a female in New Orleans does yoga online right now, oh, good. And, as well as Pilates, too. Um, so it's it's blowing up.
2: I'm really. hoping that they keep it going even after the COVID.
0: Why not do it from your backyard or your front porch? Yeah, that might uh, be one of the uh, silver think, linings, baby.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know about a silver lining, but um, I can definitely see a lot more services. That are doable at home, being offered at home, uh, after exactly. after all this is done. So, uh, all right. Well, anne what what do you got for us? What are you reading, listening to, doing
0: to keep mm, yourself? Son- well, uh, uh, uh,
1: apparently, sorry, I I have some intel on this, and there was thank you. I, I'm so proud of my 10k walk yesterday, but I'm told uh-huh. I'm told that a week ago today that you went on a twenty four kilometer walk to a place called Slot did I get that <laughs> right
3: <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I started that, yeah, yeah, uh, we made like Philip and I we made um, a long walk exactly twenty five kilometers, and we did that twice now, and uh, I started that two weeks ago the first two weeks of this month, I was only working i right. didn't do anything. And in the end of the night, I was so too tired and I just went to bed and there was nothing, I needed nothing to distract me. And after two weeks when the work uh, got a little less busy, uh, we went out and uh, we made that walk and we did that last Sunday again and we go out for that tomorrow. And uh, I guess... For tomorrow, perhaps it's going to be thirty or thirty-five kilometers. So we have right. to set the, the standard, I guess. And so, so tomorrow's walking. a holiday for
1: you. Sorry. Tomorrow's a holiday today, in the what? Netherlands.
3: Yes, it is, and it. Um, but it doesn't really matter because all days are a little bit the same. So I work right. at home, go to the office once in a while, but and today is a, a holiday, so we go walking. And the nice thing about walking is for me, it's the exercising, like the physical exercising, but also being outside and also the talking. And it's different from sitting across one another and drinking and whatever and talking, uh, which we do of course, but like just walking and talking and reflecting on like life and work and everything and sometimes being quiet and enjoying nature or well that's a that's a great thing to do and it gives me a lot of it relaxes me and it gives perspective as well so i really like to do that and um um, and i also like well this is joe you said it's not a not a happy subject and of course a lot of um not nice things are going on but i think this whole crisis is is a kind of interesting as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm reading a lot of like background articles about how this is affecting society and how it works out in different countries and how perhaps this leads to a paradigm shift after the crisis or not, or-
0: Well, cool. yeah, um, it's, fa- it's fascinating, yeah. isn't it? That's it great. is yes.
3: it's fascinating and so in my day job or uh, I'm like it's very practical and it's very to, I need to solve things and get things going but I also like to reflect on the greater like the greater scheme and what is happening afterwards and how it affects us in it like uh, uh, individuals but also society.
0: As a, as a Civilization right? I mean
3: yeah yeah.
2: In our different communities,
0: that's right. Exactly. Yeah. It's so it's so it's so weird how that macro-micro thing. Molly, yes,
2: like, that's right.
0: That's so interesting to me because we're all yeah. experiencing it over the entire effing world, yet it's our communities that touch us every day, and uh, it's, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. What
2: thanks. I think is interesting too, though, is um, that we'll be able to refer to uh, this time of how we. Uh, conducted our life and because a lot of people are working online when they used to not have that option. So, um, I know a friend of mine who I think she works for the federal government. She was talking about how her employees or the people that she supervises are much more productive now than they were when they had to report to the office. Sure. And so I think this is, uh, hopefully going to offer a shift in, uh, our approach to, uh, our employment
1: and how you know the I, options I, that we you have. You know, have. Molly, as someone who's employed in Los Angeles and lives in New Orleans, I am counting on it. I'm yeah. On it.
0: Also, <laughs> also speaking to another person that like my most productive hours, it turns out, are eight p.m. to four a.m. and I get to roll with that now. For you sure. Know? I don't have to like do that nine to five thing. It's as great.
1: is evidenced by the text that I get in the middle of the night. Oh, sorry, buddy, I should
0: cut that you should. you should silence your phone. But I, I will try and no,
1: no, no. I'm working on what the right do not disturb hours are. I'm still getting into my rhythm. Um, yeah, you're right. What's Joel, your, what's your
0: diversion, dude? What's your my, diversion? My diversion.
1: Um, I don't know if you're an SNL fan. I am. Last night was the first yes. SNL episode from home.
0: I posted and, it on Facebook today. I was so excited.
1: Yeah, I uh, I watched it this morning. Saturday very Night good. Live, Anne-Marie, if, if you don't uh, know what SNL means right off the bat. it uh, I, It's hard to describe. It, it wasn't the funniest thing I've ever seen. There was certainly a lot of effort and a lot of... I mean, it demonstrated how clever these people are. Um, almost a throwaway seg- segment at the very end. I think it was uh, Ego Nodim doing makeup for Zoom with uh, Crayola... <sighs> Crayola Magic Markers. That's great. It was was a great set. Sorry if I spoiled that for you. But I encourage you to watch and just see how creative and talented those people are and also just to feel a little bit more normal for those who who check in on
0: SNL all the time. SNL might be the most through line of a cultural touch point in my entire life.
1: Dude, that's Gen X. Gen X... I've never SNL. missed a show. I've never missed a show. We grew up while the original cast yeah. was happening. We lived through the 80s and the, all the casts. It's it's yeah. the it's it's the progression of our lives. Yeah, so that's, that's, definitely, that's right. you were talking about Gen X stuff the other day. That would uh, that would definitely be one.
0: Are you listening to WWZ? Because I'm not. I feel kind of embarrassed by that.
1: I, I've been listening a little bit more to NPR in the car than I, than I normally would when I'm down here. But I have to uh, tell you, I tuned into OZ yesterday at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And yeah. on the hour, the first thing that happened was the program you're about to listen to was previously recorded. So they are were playing canned shows wow. on OZ. Now, I don't That's know what what's behind that. I don't know if they're finding it difficult to staff the station or yeah. if people just don't want to come in. I remember back during Katrina that I actually corresponded with the then general manager, I think it was David Friedman of WWOZ, and had some recorded shows that I emailed to them. And they set up, a, because obviously their transmitter wasn't back, they set up a stream of just shows that third parties had recorded. I know over the years they've gotten a lot more tight and have planned for stuff like that. So yep. I don't know how much of what you're hearing on Oz right now is live. It's a pity if it isn't.
0: Well, I'm but, glad they're being safe, Andrew. I gotta say, uh, I'm glad. If they don't, if they can't be live, they can't be live. And I, I mean, I, you know what I mean. I don't, I don't
1: disagree with you, but I, I, yes, everybody should be safe first. But it, I it, probably be really haven't sad.
0: tuned into OZ just because I didn't want to be depressed by them not having a live show, probably, you know what I mean? Yep. But, but do you have more stuff? Because I actually have music recommendations. Go for it. Okay. Um, Van Morrison's first album, Bang Masters. He had just come over uh, from Europe. And he and Lester Bang was the producer and he did the brown eyed girl thing, which is like my Lester least Bangs favorite song of all. was the producer. Correct. Was so the Lester album,
1: Bangs was didn't he start Cream Magazine or something? I thought.
0: I, yes, I think you're right. I, I could be butchering this, but the album is called Bang Masters. And Lester Bangs owned all the rights. But the idea though, the deal that Van Morrison, like fresh off the fucking boat, dude in New York City was I'll give you your six songs and then you give me my six, right? And so his six songs, Bangs's, were Brown Eyed Girl, all the shitty Van Morrison pop songs that everyone loved, but I can't stand those people. And, but then he also did six songs of his own, which became Astral Weeks about two years later. And it was, which is my favorite album of all time.
1: Uh, so, Ma- Madam George, yeah, no, well, yes. Astral Weeks is yes. obviously Madam a seminal album.
0: Dude, you can hear Lester Bangs in the background on the original Madam George. Like, this is going way too long, dude. <laughs> you kind know of what I mean. Like, he's sorry, I'm moving too much. So, I'm getting so, really animated.
1: so, so Lester Bangs was not the producer, the producer was Burt Burns. But- oh, thank you. But I, I want to dig in more on this because I, I was not aware of this and I'd love to find out more. Wikipedia a, is, I'm looking at it right great. now. It's very thin, very thin on it's this album. It's,
0: it's a great story. And then other two very quick things related to one of our guests, Molly. Um, you mentioned your fabulous boyfriend. Um, I ordered a book for his son that should be coming to their house soon. Um, it's called The Hummingbird and the Hawk. And that is a creative nonfiction piece about the Spanish uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, conquest of what we now call Mexico in the mid, middle 1500s. And it reads like effing poetry. It is my, along with Tommy Sancton's songs for my father, it is my favorite hands down creative nonfiction piece. It is just, it's a knockout. And uh, That's awesome. I don't think,
2: Julian's gonna love it.
0: I don't think he knows it's coming, and I'm glad it is. And then, very finally, and it's funny, Andrew, because I had a smell on my list too. But um, Christian Scott, the local musician who is the nephew of um, of, Harrison. Uh, thank you, and uh, he was he like one of those, different name, doesn't he? he does he does what is it it's he does go by a different name but he i think he still goes by christian scott as well i'm not sure apologize to christian scott and his and his family who live right down the street from me if i completely um making that mistake um but he went on ryan Rossillo's podcast of all things the dude from the ringer who's like a bro dude yeah you know guy From, you know, Famously from ESPN and now he's on the Ringers Network. Dude, Christian Scott Um, gets
1: a call from from a Ringer podcast. He's gonna pick up the phone.
0: He's gonna take it. As talented
1: and and wonderful as Christian Scott is, he's gonna answer that
0: call. And it turns out that Ryan Rosillo really loves jazz music and Christian Scott's his favorite artist. And I'm not gonna call out trombone shorty because he's awesome, but in that vein, the two kids that I saw playing at Jazz Fest all those years ago with you, Andrew, in the jazz tent, when Trumbo and Shorty would come up with James Andrews and then Christian Scott would come up with Donald Harrison, I got to say, I mean, if there's scales and there's a balance, I love me some Christian Scott as all.
1: I'm 100% there with you. My, my memory is a little different. It's about him sitting in with Don and Lonnie at the Blue Nile. Oh, shit.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, good, well, that's good shout stuff. out, man. Yeah, Well, I'm, I'm, I'm good.
1: Well, I think that about wraps it up. So I'm going to thank our guests, Molly McGee and Marie Dalen. Thank you so much for joining us. That was that I got it. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to slight anybody else, but that's by far the best conversation we've had so far on this, this young hey. podcast. For sure. So.
2: Can I um, include just some information real quick to help your you listeners? You sure can, out there? please. Um, I have been going through the internet and trying to find some uh, good information to people. Uh, Johns Hopkins University website has a really good uh, website, COVID-19 information. Dr. Falone is a virologist there who um, has, it's a really short six minute um, video that explains uh, how the virus gets in and attacks. And um, I just thought that was really helpful. And it's just on layman's terms. So it's really helpful to understand exactly what we're facing. Um, The Mayo Clinic had uh, some good information too on how we can help ourselves in uh, supporting ourselves and our uh, community through this Um, along with, and I don't know if I, uh, this isn't really a plug for a local uh, uh, place, but the Remedy Room has uh, on their website, they have a whole lot of information, videos on other ways to help support your immune system and what you can do for yourself at home to uh, promote your own personal wellness. So that thanks for letting me include that, but Good. I'm just trying That's so hard awesome, to help Molly. everybody That's really
1: need, We really need to uh, to start putting this together on the website, Joel, is set of COVID-19 resources that people can rely on. So thanks so much Thank for you. that, Molly. Really appreciate it. Uh, yeah as always thank you to my co-host in the seventh ward joel jackson locking it down right on and
3: marie so good to see you uh so good to see you hope to see you soon soon in better circumstances
2: i know right yeah
1: absolutely that we're all looking forward to those better circumstances Mm -hmm. in in, in the meantime
0: Mm -hmm. meantime
1: stay with us here we'll chat digitally um, thank everybody for tuning in to this extra long episode of Six Feet of Separation. i um, Andrew Levy. For Joel and our guests, I'd like to say stay safe and keep your distance.